the opportunity that we have to come together and engage in spirited singing of praise unto God, the appreciation of fellowship also, of course, with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and with uh, His Father, our, our God in heaven. A time like this is certainly a highlight of the week and one that we each can look forward to and appreciate the glory that is ours to be able to come together like this. As was mentioned in the announcements just a few moments ago, Certainly, I'd like to take the opportunity to express appreciation to those men of our congregation that will be doing the proclamation of the truth here the next couple of Sundays. Uh, that meeting at Bloomington Springs in which my family and I will be participating beginning next Lord's Day. And also the week following that at the Leeville Congregation in Wilson County. I'm very thankful for the men here who will be carrying on the services and doing the teaching of the Bible classes and the preaching of the lessons. As we've often said, Pippin's a very blessed place in that regard, and certainly we're very honored to have those men who not only have the capability but the willingness to use their talents in that way. Don't forget, if you would, the puzzles available in the uh, foyer as you leave the auditorium. So if you haven't picked up one, feel free to do that. Chapters 10 and 11 of the book of Exodus, the latest puzzle that's there. As we come to this part of our lesson this morning, might we take note of the title, and also is that which Brother Cale read for us just a few moments ago, taken from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Oh, the causing others to abhor service to God. In fact, as we begin that set of thoughts concerning a lesson of that entitlement, it is interesting to notice, or at least give some reflection to the obligations that you and I have as those who walk upon this earth, those who have life within our lungs, those who have the opportunity to live and to breathe in this place. You see, it is amazing to think about the number of obligations that you and I, each one of us, has. Obligations to our spouse, obligations to our children, if we're parents. Children, you have obligations to your parents, obligations to our employers, if you happen to be an employer, you have obligations to your employees, and on and on that list can in fact go. But as you give some thought to the spiritual dimension that associates to it, we have obligations, certainly as Christians, to other people. I would suggest this morning that you and I might do well to revisit this rather compelling Old Testament scene and learn from it some lessons that God desired not only to teach those of that day, but in fact to impress upon ourselves these vital lessons still today. As we perhaps move in that direction, I would suggest we look at our lesson in this regard. Let's first give some thought to the context of the passage. What was being said? Who said it? To whom was it said? And with a firmer understanding of the scene then, we'll be ready to draw some applications for our lives today. We must revisit the book of 1 Samuel. That book, of course, nestled in the early stages of the Old Testament, is nonetheless a book that is inspired, and in the chapters that it contains, it teaches us many, many things about the ancient kingdom of God and lessons that can be very beneficial to us today. The days of the judges is how the book of 1 Samuel opens. Although it's true that the time will come in this book when a king will be appointed and chosen, this occurred during the early stages of the book of Judges, and now the judges were still those individuals whom God would raise up at appropriate times for the deliverance of his people from their oppressors. 
Among the 15 judges that are listed in the Old Testament, the next to the last one is a gentleman named Eli. Again, as far as we know, the second to the last of the judges of the Old Testament period. As you can see, some of the things about him. It would seem that during his early years, Eli was a rather noted judge. However, as we come to his later years, he was an elderly man. We will learn, in fact, in chapter 4 that his eyesight was a bit bad. And there were other things about his stature that naturally had begun to not be the same as it was when he was earlier and when he was young. In fact, the time came his sons took up the mantle of assisting him in his service as the priests. I've listed the names of his two sons. The older was named Hophni, the younger Phineas. And as we look at the activities of these two sons, we find some troubling things. In fact, so troubling that I've listed for you that the report that was brought to Eli about the behavior of his sons was in fact very disturbing. I have asked us to highlight or at least bring to mind some of the reports. I'd like to begin reading just one or two of the verses and then we'll lay some emphasis and highlight some of the features of what these boys were doing. Remember, this was Eli's sons of whom the following report was given. Beginning in verse 12 of 1 Samuel 2. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seizing with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand. And he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. Also before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee but raw. And if any man said unto him, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth, then he would answer him, Nay, but thou shalt give it me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. We find a number of troubling matters in the behavior of the sons of Eli. I have tried to call to our attention a few of them. First of all, on those occasions when the thank offering was brought by the children of Israel, we find in the book of Leviticus very specific instructions given as to how that offering was to be set forth and what the priest was to do in response to collecting his part. Notice what was taking place. It was very carefully asserted in the book of Leviticus that the fat on the animal was to be burnt as an offering to God, and that was to take place first. That was to occur before the priest got his share. That was to occur, in fact, before the individual making the offering was to enjoy the thank meal. Again, the offering to God by the burning of the fat was to occur first. However, you'll notice that on the occasion when finally the priest got his share, the priest and the tribe of Levi was to be given the breast of the sacrificed animal as well as the thigh of that sacrificed animal. Those were to be dedicated to the priest 
So the person offering was not to consume that for himself. You'll find these references in Leviticus 3 as well as Leviticus 7. But might I invite us to notice, what did the sons of Eli do? As you can see in the verse that we read, verses 14 to 16, these sons of Eli wanted their part before anything was offered to God. Can you believe it? They wanted their share before anything by way of burning the fat was offered unto God. And in fact, isn't the language amazing in verse 15? It says, And before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest. It is significant. Again, it says, Before they burnt the fat. They wanted their share in selfishness prior to God receiving the rightful sacrifice and offering that was made unto him. However, that wasn't the only error. You'll notice in verse number 14, at the thank meal, that is to say the offering or the meal that the person and his family enjoyed upon the occasion of this offering, Notice again, the priest was specifically told in Levi in the book of Leviticus that the thigh and the breast are all that belongs to you. The other parts of the meal, the other parts of the animal, were not his. And yet, as that family was enjoying the preparation of the meal, while they were boiling the flesh, it says that the servants of these sons of Eli would come and with a hook of three teeth dip it into the pot and whatever was brought out, they would take it. They had no right in any legitimate way to that which was brought out of that pot. And yet they would in fact declare it for themselves, take it by force if required. These two errors, you see, were rather great. In the word in verse 15 it says, Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great. These weren't the only errors. You might in fact notice another. A little bit later in the chapter, in verse number 22, the following description is also given of these sons of Eli. Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. As we read in Exodus 38.8, there were ladies, women, who in fact would offer their services for the preparation of the various things related to the tabernacle, the preparation of the various meals that were associated with its doing. The opportunity of all of that, as it's mentioned, is such that the sons of Eli abused that and in fact committed fornication with those women gathered at the door of the tabernacle. In each of those three instances, it's no wonder that what Eli heard about his son's activities was no glowing report. Even Eli heard what they said and he attempted to express to them his displeasure in what they were doing. But verse 12 still reads, Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. Although their father had been a rather trusted priest and judge for quite some time, it would appear, nonetheless his sons, and let me use the Hebrew word, were worthless. That word that's translated Belial literally means worthless. These sons were base, they were vulgar. In terms of carrying out and encouraging service to God, they were worthless. For the reasons we've just seen, 
A very, very sad description is given in verse 17. Men abhorred to serve the offering of the Lord. By what these boys did, their behavior, they caused other people to abhor service to God. They didn't look forward to bringing their sacrifices. They didn't look forward to the thank offerings. They didn't enjoy the opportunity to do that which God had commanded. Because of what Eli's sons had done, people abhorred the service of the Lord. There are some lessons in that that you and I can consider greatly for our day. Not the least of which might be this. How did God look upon the activities of the sons of Eli? Did he, in fact, ignore it? Did he neglect it? Or did he, in response, offer punishment toward it? Later in the chapter, we have the following statement given. I'd like you to notice with me verse number 34. Later, as the prophet Samuel came before Eli, he made a rather chilling prophetic proclamation. Can you imagine being a father and having these words said to you about your own sons? And this shall be a sign unto thee that shall come upon thy two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. You see, God, in fact, was to punish swiftly, immediately, and directly the sins of these two sons of Eli. And here Eli had to stand there and listen to these words from Samuel. God has witnessed and observed what your sons have done, and in one day both of them are going to die. All you need to do is turn over two chapters to chapter 4, and we'll find that day came. Both of them died in one day. As we give some thought to the lessons that can be extracted from that for you and me today, might we begin and look at it from the following vantage point. This lesson, I would submit, challenges every one of us in this audience who are Christians. Every one of us who claim to be Christians, every one of us who attempt to live as Christians, must be challenged and thoroughly so by the example that we have seen in the sons of Eli. Consider some of these remarks. You and I as Christians should be the following framework. We should be encouraging others in their service to God. We should be lifting high the opportunity in them to employ their talents to serve God dutifully and nobly. We should be kinds of individuals who, by the example that we say it, the words that we say, the places that we go, we should be lifting high the banner of this is what it means to serve God and the hope that's within us and the impressiveness of what we wish to accomplish for others in their lives. But yet... As you give some thought to all of those things, notice how the Bible places those expectations upon us. It's not just an opinion. There are words that can be placed in language like this. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, we find as Paul addressed that young son of his in the faith, Timothy, he said, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers. In word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. In a sixfold way, Timothy, you are to be an example of the believers. And it was to involve, first of all, your conversation. That word in Greek means your lifestyle, your conduct, the way that you live day by day. Secondly, notice amongst that least, your purity. 
Timothy, you are to live a life where others will respect and at least appreciate the purity that you strive to set forth in the way that you conduct yourself. It is no wonder that in 1 Timothy 5.22 we write those words, Keep thyself pure. You'll notice that purity as it was lifted high. He was to be an example of, of others. Furthermore, the attribute of faith. Timothy, your faith, others will, of course, as you strive to proclaim the gospel, they will look to you, and if your life is not an example of that which you preach, there will be very few interested in hearing you. That old adage, practice what you preach, it must be a firmly appreciated part of any person who is to be a Christian because the world will leap at once upon any person who does not live as he encourages others to. That's hypocrisy, and no one appreciates a hypocrite. Isn't it interesting that as you look down that list, he also said in love. Timothy, as you have love for your enemies, love for your neighbor, love for those about you, others will appreciate that, or they will appreciate its missingness or the fact that it's absent. In all of those ways, we notice a Christian has obligations too. You'll notice also on that list, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, wasn't it Paul who could say, Be thou a follower of me, as I also am of Christ. Can you and I make a statement like that? That with a straight face to look at others, you follow me to the extent that I follow Christ. And yet all of us as Christians should so live that we should be able, in honesty and in directness, to make that statement. Not only do we have obligations like that as Christians, consider perhaps others. Our treatment of other individuals. Jesus, in that statement of Matthew 7, verse 12, it was on that occasion he said, in a lesson that still comes down to us today, sometimes called that golden rule, you and I often state it in language like this, treat others as you would have them treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Do you and I conduct ourselves that way, treating others, behaving toward them the way we wish that they would behave toward us? That is a far cry from treating them the way they have treated us or the way they in mind may wish to treat us. It is a statement that we treat them how we wish that they had treated us. That only is echoed in language in Galatians 5.14. Where there Paul wrote, love thy neighbor as thyself. Any person in need, any individual whom you and I are able to assist, we should appreciate that God would expect and demand that we do that. And doesn't it set forth for us that the great Samaritan teaches us that very rule? In Luke the 10th chapter beginning verse 25, we read about that good Samaritan, that gentleman who, despite the fact that both a priest and a Levite had passed by this poor pitiful man, the one who had been robbed and beaten and left for half dead, it was this Samaritan, one who the Jews looked upon with despisement, who looked upon, in fact, in many ways with hatred, John 4, verses 9 and 10. Yet it was this Samaritan who did for that man what he needed done, that Samaritan assisted him, poured oil into his wounds, bound him up, took him to an inn, and said, The charge is on me. 
And inasmuch as that was stated, we find here again an obligation set before us as Christians. Activities of benevolence, activities of kindness and helpfulness. But yet there are other obligations as well. You and I as Christians are called upon to live toward a higher plane of existence. The world so often displays for us selfishness, mundane pursuit of these matters that eternally are no good. But yet you and I serve a higher master than that. Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet tis not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul knew well and encouraged those in Galatia to pursue this higher plane in which Christ will be manifested in his life. To say these things is to point out to us again what God expects of each of us, to follow the rule given by his Son. It is still the case, isn't it, that the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all that they which live unto themselves should not, in fact, follow the pursuit of themselves, but live unto him who died for them and rose again. Those statements are daily and compelling challenges for every one of us. Satan, you see, isn't interested in us living that way. As you give some thought to what all that involves, perhaps we can summarize that slide simply in this way. You and I must live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That brings us then to how do we live? We've just stated how we should live, what the Bible encourages of each of us and the obligations that are ours as Christians. Might I ask us to give some thought to the following set of ideas about our example to others? What kind of an example are you before those that know you? before those that see you day in and day out. You and I are to be an impressive example of godliness and goodness. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5.16 In addition to that passage, we can think of many others wherein the notion of an example is set. As Paul wrote to the Roman brethren in Romans 12, May I call to your attention the first two verses of that chapter. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Thus you and I are called upon to offer our bodies, always and daily, as a living sacrifice with every respect to that perfect and acceptable will of God. Not conforming now to what the world finds as noble and good, but transforming your mind and mind to what God has decreed and declared, for that is what is acceptable and that is what will make a good example for others. When we give some thought to that example, it brings us full circle. Eli's sons were supposed to have been an example too. Eli's sons, because they were the son of the judge, Eli, the son of the priest, they were the ones serving in the role of the priest. They should have been the men to whom all Israel could look and say, that's how you're supposed to live. 
They're the kind of men who lift high the law of God. They know well what was set forth at Mount Sinai, and they try to teach it to others. Their lives are pure and holy. They live as they would have all of us live. But that was the problem. They didn't live that way. Notice again, they lived in such a way they caused others to abhor service to God. As I mentioned earlier, by their abuse of the sacrifices, by their taking what was not lawfully theirs, their committing fornication with the ladies at the tabernacle, they were the exact opposite of what ought to have been true of those who were priests. They were sorry examples of what they should have been. What about you and me as Christians? Are you and I sorrowful examples of what we ought to be? Or rather, are we those who do live in such a way others should see in us the kind of life that God would have them to live? The title of our lesson this morning was this, Causing Others to Abhor Service to God. When others look at your life or mine, do what they see cause them to abhor service to God? That word abhor means to despise. It means to treat with contempt. And thus, because of what others see in the life of Randy, or put your name in that sentence, do they have a despised attitude toward what the church stands for? Do they despise what Christ supposedly did at Calvary? Do they have contempt for all that the church responds to and appreciates? It is a compelling question, isn't it? Every one of us, in the sound of my voice, who are Christians, are those who should be those examples. As we come near the bottom of that slide, several questions. If you can well imagine, Eli's sons were hypocrites. They were nothing close to what they should have been in terms of examples for God. What about you and me? Do you and I play the hypocrite? Do you and I, in fact, simply play act in terms of Christianity? It is amazing to consider the derivation of that word hypocrite. It comes from an ancient Greek word that means to, to, that has reference to, I should say, an actor on stage. When you and I attend a play, that person on the stage is playing a role that is not the real life of that person. He's play acting. Some people are very good at it. We can sit for hours mesmerized at what these actors can portray that's not their real life question is, what about your life and mine as Christians? Are we play acting? On Sunday and Wednesday, do we sound the right notes in terms of the fact we go to the right place, but other times of the week you never know we're Christians? If so, we're play acting. We're not really genuinely committed to what we claim to be. We don't practice what we preach. And if so, may I submit the same end and fate that happened to Eli's sons in parallel fashion will happen to us. God wasn't pleased with them. In fact, he destroyed them in the same day they died. And at the day of judgment, if not before, you and I will sorely regret our play acting. God wants an unfeigned faith. 2 Timothy 1 verses 5 and 6. He wants a genuine commitment and dedication to him. Not just four hours a week. Two on Sunday morning, one on Wednesday night, one on Sunday night. A week has 168 hours, and he wants all of you and all of me for all of that time. It is somewhat fascinating to notice just a few of the passages that 
cause us to understand the evilness of playing the hypocrite. How God looks upon the evil associated with it. Again, this list is just a sampling. But in Matthew 15, beginning in verse 7, our Savior joined in the chorus, if you please, of this discussion. When he noted, This people honoreth me with their mouth and with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You'll notice that rather than proclaiming the things of God, they were teaching the doctrines of men, and the Lord condemned them for that. They were playing the hypocrite. Later we find in 1 Peter 2 verse 1, laying aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisies. How many, Peter? All of them. Lay that aside and desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. In the third place, in Titus 1.16, as the Apostle Paul, writing to Titus, made reference to the behaviors of some, he said, these are abominable. Even though they profess that they know God, they deny Him, and thus make themselves abominable. Isn't that shocking? They speak the fact that they know God, but the way they live, you can never tell it. I wonder if that's descriptive of you or me today. If it is, may we in urgency come to our senses and realize that we're doing God no favor. In fact, by the way that we live, we may be causing someone else to have no interest in the church. Have you ever spoken with someone who perhaps says something like, well, if all of them are like him, I don't want any part of it. If that's the way the church is, then I'm just as good as they are. I admit that there are many things they don't understand in a statement like that. But if by your life and mine they impugn the character of God and they see in us so less than what they know we should be, then we have a problem. Our speech isn't as it ought to be. Where they've seen us go perhaps is not what it should be. We're playing the hypocrite. Eli's son still stands a timeless lesson of what happens to those who play the hypocrite. Other passages in this list, in Romans 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, to the church in Rome, Paul said, You that can be a mother as you yourselves are guilty of the same. Isn't that a startling verse? Here were Jews openly condemning Gentiles, and yet the Jews were guilty of the same sins of which the Gentiles were guilty. And Paul said, Let me tell you, God also requires repentance of you. Isn't it amazing as you give some thought to all of those things? If the sons of Eli, you see, set for us such a bad example, but it's an example from which we can learn so much. You and I must not play the hypocrite. We must be committed to the one who died for us and live daily, meaning tomorrow and Tuesday and all the days of the week, so that our life is as it ought to be, and that others can look at us and we can in faith say, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. When they see in us what those of that day saw in the sons of Eli, you and I are causing others to abhor the service of God. We are, in fact, aiding them on their journey to hell. For if they despise the church and have no interest in the gospel, there's nothing else that can save them. There's no other power that God has made available to save the sin-sick souls of men. And thus how terrible it is and how tragic when a Christian chooses to live beneath his privileges and chooses to so conduct himself to cause others to despise 
the very church for which Christ died, and the gospel that is the basis of all that he came to set before us. It is with those thoughts in mind that our lesson has drawn to its conclusion this morning. In summary, the question now that would in fact be a good one to ask of each of us personally, and let each of us ask ourselves, as I ask myself, you ask yourself, do I, do I, though I claim to be a Christian, do I live in a way to cause others to despise the service to God? If so, the song of invitation is going to be sung in just a moment. And if you need to make a public response, today's the day. This is the time. We'd be happy to pray for your rededication. We'd be happy to petition God that he'd forgive you of those failures in your life and that you could now walk in a way to where you wouldn't be the hypocrite. You could be a person devoted to the kind of life God would have you to be. It may be you've never become a Christian. If so, at this point, you're not a hypocrite, but you are lost. You've never come to know the joy that associates to service to the Master. We could also assist you in your confession and in your baptism. And if we could be of help in any of those ways to anyone in the audience today, would you not please let it be known as you think about not causing others to abhor service to God? If we could help you, will you not come while together we stand and while we sing?